So it's so good to be here this evening. I'd love it if you have a Bible, if you'd open your Bible to uh, the book of Nehemiah. And if you know very little about the Bible, that's absolutely fine. But uh, basically, find a Bible if you've got one near you, cut it in half and turn left about an inch. And you'll get to the book of Nehemiah. It's in the Old Testament, which means it comes before the story of Jesus. Um, but it's one of those precursors to the stories of, uh, of Jesus. It's one of those books where we, we get to know something more about who God is. And we get to know something more about who we are. And we get to kind of nail those two things together and work out how we live life even today. Uh, so that's the book of Nehemiah. And we're starting a new series. Just as Kira said, it's like a box set. It's like, uh, it's like a mini-series. It's like we do it over several weeks, and I'm not very good at the cliffhanger thing, but if I can nail that, then it's going to sell really well. But uh, it, basically, we're going to do this over five, four or five weeks, and we're going to do it uh, with three contexts in mind. Context number one, we have this, this vision statement as a church. We say that we exist to love Edinburgh, to be family, and to follow Jesus. Which is quite a big statement, but actually, unless you unpack it, it's quite a vanilla statement, isn't it? It's kind of, kind of, that's the kind of thing any church should say, isn't it? They're for the city, they want to be some kind of community, and they want to follow Jesus. That's the kind of, so we're going to unpack that as part of what we're doing over the next few weeks. The second thing that we're doing is we're, we're moving towards that weekend at home where I hope that you'll all show up, I mean, selling it with a hog roast. Um, you know, that, that, I hope you'll all show up because this is family and because we're going to get to talk about some of the things that God's laid on, his, on our heart for this city and what we might do in the next season. Now, there's two contexts. The third context is this. Our world is busted. Isn't it? I mean, we talk about that kind of thing a lot. It doesn't take a lot of reading of the news to know we live in a broken world. It doesn't take a lot of shootings in American schools to know that we live in a broken world. And it doesn't take a lot of the fact that that's not uncommon these days. It doesn't take a lot more ex exposure to people who have abused and harassed to know that we live in a broken world. It doesn't take a lot of refugees like the biggest movement of people across the planet since the fall of Rome to know that we live in a broken world. And it's not just a broken world, it's an intensely sad world. Isn't it? kind of feels like there is a deep sadness in our world that can't quite be dealt with. And we kind of know that we're supposed to deal with it, but we can't fix it, we can't solve it, we can't sort it. And, and this whole series is, is played out in the context of the fact that most of us want to blame somebody for it. Most of us want to blame you know, the leaders for it, or the philosophies for it, or the decisions for it, or the structures for it, or the inequalities for it, or something for it, but we kind of know deep in our hearts that it's just because we're broken, and it's because people are broken, and people make bad decisions, and we're broken. And every time we point a finger, we're aware of the ones pointing back at us going, actually, we're part of the problem as well. And so I want to take you to another city. And the city I want to take you to is, is a city like a few thousand years ago. It's not Edinburgh. It's a place called Jerusalem. And I want to take you to a city where the walls are down. The walls are broken. And not just metaphorically down, but physically down. And it's a huge thing. 
I am, um, last night my family and I went to watch, um, uh, went to what I call the pictures. My girls go, really? No one calls that the pictures. What even is that? The moving pictures? You know, the, we went to the cinema, to the movies. Do you call it the movies? Is that kind of lame? Is it? Not really. Okay. I, look, why am I looking at you as if like you're the source of all wisdom and coolness? <laughs> What's going on there? Um, so we went to see the darkest, a darkest hour. Have you seen anyone? See, put your hand up if you've seen Darkest Hour. Oh my word! You have to see this film. Like I thought, you know, Churchill. It'll be good. It'll be moving. But it's kind of one of those defining. Am I wrong? It's kind of one of those defining films. I just sat and watched it, and I'm, I'm a bit of a blubber anyway. I, I cry at everything. This morning I said I cried at Mean Girls, which clearly never happened. Well, I might have done, but but. But I was like, I now have to wear glasses, which means it's very obvious when I'm crying. I'm just kind of shaking with emotion in, in the thing because, because Winston Churchill came to a, a moment in his life when he realized it was like the darkest hour for our nation. And he realized that, that everyone, every other voice and everyone else was saying, you have to capitulate and you have to sue for peace with the Germans. His whole party was saying this to him, and I think it's probably true. And he came to a moment when he thought it might be true and then there, there came a decision, a, a Rubicon was crossed and he said, you know, we will fight them on the beaches. I love this. This whole sermon has been created so I can do this. We will, we will on the landing grounds and in the... St- and if, if, we will never surrender and you know I watched that film and um, I came out wanting to be part of a group of people who would change the world and not just because there was emotion in it but because I think we are at a very similar moment in our history and it's not a nation state thing it's bigger than that and you know what I've discovered is this that in any significant venture In any significant lifetime, there is a significant moment. I don't care what you call it, whether you call it a defining moment, a light bulb moment, a turning point, it doesn't really matter what you call it. But there comes a moment when you have to say enough is enough, a decision has to be made. A Rubicon has to be crossed, a plan has to be drawn up, and there is no going back. And from that moment onwards, nothing is ever the same again. And I know it sounds grandiose, and I know this kind of preacher's license, but I think we're at that kind of moment in our history when no one can really argue. There is nothing will ever be the same again. Nothing. Everything has shifted. Everything has changed. Every philosophy that we grew up with has shifted and changed. Every security that we thought was secure is now no longer secure. Yesterday's certainties have become today's insecurities and, and all bets are off now. Nothing will ever be the same again. People are broken. And there is a moment, not just for individuals, not just for me, not just for you, and you will make your decision, and I will make my decision, and we will decide what we want to decide, and we will go for the things that we're supposed to go for. But there is a moment for a group of people to say, we believe in something bigger. We believe in one who is greater. We will make a stand. We will make some decisions. 
and nothing will ever be the same again. And I think, if that's not too dramatic an intro, that's what this series is all about. Um, we, we're going to a different city. So let's, let's read the book of Nehemiah. Well, just the first chapter, not the whole book. Don't worry, some of you are <gasps> going to read the whole book. Context of the book of Nehemiah, really quickly because we haven't got a lot of time. Um, the people of Israel had always been called the people of God. But the reality was for years and years and years, they'd stopped being the people of God. So what it meant to be the people of God was that you put God at the heart of everything. You, you prioritized his presence and you obeyed his edicts and his laws. And then you became some kind of witness to all the nations around that, that, that God was God and he was real. But the people of God had decided not to do that. And God had spoken again and again and again graciously to them and said, Look, if I'm a covenant God and I've made a covenant with you. But if you keep breaking the covenant, something's going to happen. There are consequences. And eventually they didn't listen and consequences came and they found themselves exiled, not to beat them up, but to bring them back eventually. And for 70 years, the people of Israel were, were exiled in, in a foreign land and they didn't really know whether they would ever come back. But God kept his side of the covenant and the agreement. And, 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 and then they started to bring people back. He called a king called Cyrus and he started to send the people back. And, and the first group of people came back under a guy called Ezra. And Ezra began to rebuild the temple. And 13 years later, we read this account of Nehemiah. The scholars reckon that the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were probably uh, one book at, uh, at one time. Because they tell the same story of the return of God's people. And now we read this. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakali. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O oh Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. So here's the deal. For over a hundred years, the gates and walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. 
And within 51 days of Nehemiah arriving back in Jerusalem, a guy who, as far as we know, was not a surveyor, not a builder, not an architect, and certainly not a, a planner, has led the people of God to rebuild the walls after over 100 years of them being devastated. Something incredible happened because he made a decision. He made a decision to trust God. He made a decision to go after it. He made a decision and nothing was ever the same again. The walls are down. 14 years earlier, Ezra goes to Jerusalem and his job is to rebuild the temple. And I find this fascinating. He's called to rebuild the temple and make it strong and the worship was happening in the temple but the walls were down. Isn't that interesting? The church was functioning, but the city remained a ruin. You find that odd? Have you ever walked the streets of Edinburgh, looked around at all the spires and all the churches and all the buildings dedicated to God, and wondered why God didn't have more impact in the city? You ever thought that? You ever thought it's a bit odd that there are all these buildings, all these spires, all these things that were created to honor God? Who's, who's doing God's PR for him? You know, he should have more impact. Tesco's has more impact. Have you ever thought about the amount of buildings that are owned by people who own the name of Jesus? You ever thought about how, how many properties, how many businesses, how many houses, how many churches are owned by people who say they love Jesus and follow Jesus and then try to work out what kind of influence we really have in the city? You see, it's, it, it's possible, it's possible that we've got property but we don't take territory. We've got like a branch on every street corner, but we haven't got much coverage. Isn't it interesting that the church can be functional, but the city can be dysfunctional, and we kind of accept that. But, it, but it's, it's not the way that it should be. You see, it's possible for the church to think it's got all its stuff together. It's possible for you and I to think, well, we're beginning to communicate a bit better because we've got notice sheets and the worship seems to be better even if it isn't around. Or, or, or you know, we've got a hog roast at our uh, whatever. You know, we've got everything that's going on. We've got all the, all the stuff happening in our church. We've got the meetings fine. We've got the communities happening. We're even planting churches. And the city to have not be impacted in any way, shape, or form, it's lying in ruins because people are exposed and people are broken, and God is not being glorified. The walls are down. You know, back in the day, if the walls were down, it was a huge thing. Physically. If the walls were down in your city, it meant you were totally exposed to any enemy force. Any power, any influence, any culture could come in and just totally take over. If the walls were down in Jerusalem, it also meant that God was being shamed. Because this was the city of God. This is the place where God was supposed to dwell, in, in his temple, and, and, and the walls were down, which means God must be in ruins, or God must have left, or God not, must not be real, or he's not very powerful, or he's not all that. And the walls were down. And Nehemiah is hearing this, and he's 800 miles away in a place called Susa. And he's a cupbearer to the king, he's like a servant, he's not a town planner. It's going to take him two and a half months, even if he started off right now, to get from where he is to Jerusalem to make this thing happen. And it's winter. And he's in the, the house of the enemy. 
And over a hundred years, nearly 150, nobody else, no other spiritual leader had ever been able to build the walls. It seems totally impossible for this to happen. But God gets hold of his heart. And God getting hold of his heart is a radical game changer. And 51 days after he arrives, he's built the wall. And God gets hold of his heart and he weeps. Like proper weeps. He weeps for a people that he's probably never met because he's probably never been there. And he weeps for a city that he's never been to. And God gets hold of his heart. So my first question tonight is this. It's a biggie. Some of the questions I'm going to ask tonight are going to be provocative. Buckle up. Here's the first question. Is this supposed to be descriptive or prescriptive? Let me break it down. Is, is this just a story that we can tell and we can go, oh, it's a story. It's an incredible story. The city got built. It's something we can say, isn't God amazing? Is it just descriptive or is it prescriptive? In other words, is it, is it what we should always feel in every generation? Should our hearts be moved the way God's heart is moved for the people that God's heart is moved for? Should we be bothered that the walls are down? Or can we just continue doing this and, and putting nice things on and feeling good about ourselves and having great coffee and, and having groups that just bless this? Is this descriptive or prescriptive? And the answer is this. The entire reason that we have this biblical record is that God is wanting to get hold of your heart. God is wanting to get hold of mine. And he wants you to feel bothered like Nehemiah is bothered. And he wants me to be moved like Nehemiah is moved. And here's the thing. I'm not saying you're not, you're not bothered. Because I know you kind of are. Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here. You're kind of bothered. But, uh, but my question is this. Are you bothered like you used to be bothered? Are you bothered like for the right kind of things? Or have you found yourself bothered about other things that are not bad things? They're just not the thing that God is bothered about. And do you find yourself busy being bothered about the stuff that is about building the temple rather than building the city? Do you find yourself being bothered about the stuff that is about making sure that your stuff's okay rather than everyone else's stuff's okay? Are you bothered? What if, what, if, what if the thing that God wants for our church family in this five-week period is just to get us bothered again? Bothered about people. Because that's what God is bothered about. Bothered about people created in his image that he loves dearly who are broken and have no chance. That's what God is bothered about. Maybe, maybe even in this period of time, maybe even tonight, God is going to put you back in touch with the stuff that bothers you. Because it bothers him and he provoked it in the first place. Bothered about kids who find themselves in care. And the cycle of that stuff that doesn't always go so well. But bothered. I got bothered about that. Bothered enough to get angry and then to do something about it. Bothered about homelessness. And not bothered just about how we get someone off the streets, but asking questions about why they're there in the first place. What, what happens about what, why, why. The why questions. Bothered about food banks. I don't, mean, I don't mean kind of bothered that we have them because it's good that we have them and it's good that we do when we do one downstairs, but, but bothered that they have to exist in the first place. Why, why, why do we have to, why, why? Bothered. Bothered about 
bothered about gaming companies and gambling companies and companies that, 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 that target the vulnerable, Bother, bothered about quick loan stuff. Does, anyone, does that bother anyone? Does it bother anyone that, that on our TV sets, my kids tell me not to say the word TV set, that's apparently so 1970s, but on your, on your TV, that when you're watching something, that, that immediately comes up this thing where you can get a quick loan for this and it's only like 2,000% interest and it will be fine. And bothered about the fact that the kind of people who tend to get affected by those things are the people that can't find themselves out of these things. That bother you? Bother us? Bothered a bit, bothered that generations of people appear to live in cycles of poverty and debt and joblessness and family chaos. Bothered, bothered. And, 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 and what about being bothered about the glory of God? That's what, isn't, isn't that what we should be bothered about as a church? Bothered about the fact that everyone in Edinburgh knows the name Jesus. But knows the name Jesus when they get stuck in traffic or someone cuts them up or someone gives them a hard time or whatever it is. And Jesus is everywhere. Jesus is the most popular name on the planet. But it's very rarely because people are recognizing who he really is and what he really does. Bothered about the fact that the church of Jesus Christ is supposed to be the most beautiful organization on the planet, but often it's the ugliest. Does that bother us? We don't look a lot like Jesus a lot of the time. Does it bother us? Bother, is it bothered that we often appear to be negative when we're supposed to be positive? That, that, that we're hidden when we're supposed to be shining? Bothered. We're not concerned that the walls are down. So I think over this series, God is just wanting to get you bothered again. That this is for that. Or it's not all that. <laughs> you know, this is for, if we don't, you know, why bother? If we're not actually making, making a difference if God isn't touching our hearts if we don't learn to love each other a bit better if we don't learn to provoke each other a bit more if we don't learn to run with the dreams that God's placed in our hearts or why did he bother putting them there in the first place suddenly bothered and, and, and here's the thing God has a very particular way of provoking bothered and it's weird certainly not the way I would do it if I was God it's just totally weird he has this way of provoking bothered. Here it is. He wants you to lean into him, catch his breath, and feel his heart. That's all. It's called prayer. He wants you to lean into him, catch his breath, and feel his heart. It's called prayer. Nehemiah is so bothered that he prays. Let me tell you why this is so important. Because God is wanting to set your heart alight. And the only way to set your heart alight is to expose it to his heart. Your heart is only going to get set alight as it connects to his heart. You see, here's the deal. People do not want my compassion. Believe me. Because I'm not compassionate enough. They don't really want my love because I'm not loving enough. They certainly don't want my truth because I'm too truthful. They don't want my grace because I'm not that gracious. And they don't want my mercy because it runs out real quick. But his grace, he loves you because he loves you because he loves you. His compassion knows no end. His mercy does not. 
stop. His love is for everyone in this room and everyone beyond this room. You never meet anyone that he doesn't love, that he's not for, that he's not trying to win. And, and that kind of characteristics get med gets mediated by one who has leaned, leaned in, who has caught his breath, and who gets his heart. It's all about prayer. Prayer, guys, listen, prayer. I grew up thinking that prayer was probably about me changing God's mind. Anyone ever think that? None of you. Oh, you're so holy. Or you're not talking to me. Honestly, I, I grew up thinking that prayer was about changing God's mind, really. No one ever taught me that, but it kind of felt like we had to show up at 6 o'clock in the morning and pray for a really long time and, and get on our knees and pray and then fast and pray and somehow we were going to change God's mind because he's mean and we're compassionate and God wasn't going to do stuff and we need to make him do stuff. And Really? No, 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 no. Prayer is about God changing your heart. That's what it's about. It's about you leaning in, catching his breath, feeling his heart. So that suddenly you begin to think the way that he thinks. You begin to speak the way that he speaks. You begin to see things the way that he sees things. And suddenly you're provoked to begin to be not only his mouthpiece, but his hands and his feet in this world. That's what prayer is all about. And nothing will ever be the same again when we engage in this way with God. So here's my second question. It's a biggie. Why? Why does Nehemiah pray the way Nehemiah prays and I don't? Why do I not pray like Nehemiah prays and why don't you? It's huge, isn't it? I mean, you look at this and you think, goodness me, I just want to pray like Nehemiah prays, but then you find ourselves pretty struggling to do it. And the answer is even more difficult to stomach. You ready for this? The answer is because Nehemiah knows who God is and knows who he is. And you don't. And that sounds harsh, but honestly, if I really knew who God was and I really knew who I was, then I'd pray like Nehemiah prays and I'd see the difference happening all around me. That, that's what would happen if I really got who God... Here's, here's the issue. You and I have a diminished view of God and an elevated view of ourselves. Got this kind of diminished view of God. We kind of know in our hearts that God is very, very great and very, very good, but we act as if he probably isn't. Don't we? We act as if these stories are not really going to happen. The things that happen in the New Testament are not really going to happen. God is theoretically very great, and he can do theoretically anything, but he's probably not going to show up and do it. And so then we have this elevated view of ourselves, even though we know ourselves because we live with ourselves and we know what a dysfunctional self we are, we have this kind of elevated view of ourselves that we've got to then fix things and do things ourselves and sort things out. God's not going to show up, but, so we're going to have to fix it, we're going to have to run it, we're going to have to make it happen, and we live by our competences rather than God's graces. So we don't bother praying in the way that Nehemiah prays because we're not sure it's going to happen and we don't believe it can happen anyway. And weirdly, we don't see the kind of results that Nehemiah sees building a wall that was down for 130 or 40 years in 51 days. And then we say, oh, I'm not sure I'm struggling with my faith. Check this out. Look, Nehemiah has a very, very specific view of God. Do you know, there is absolutely no tangible evidence in this moment that God is going to be faithful. Absolutely none. There's no tangible evidence here that God is really great and God is very good. In fact, it looks completely the opposite. 
God's people are scattered to the four winds. Jerusalem's walls are down. The temple has only just been rebuilt. The land flowing with milk and honey. No one's in it. But but check out Nehemiah's prayer. You are faithful. You are good. You're a covenant-keeping God. You've not abandoned us. Even in our hurt, you love us. You will keep your promises. He's absolutely cast iron sure of who God is. And he also knows who he is. And he begins to confess the sins of Israel. He says, we have let you down. You've been faithful. We've not been faithful. Even, get this, even I and my father's house, we have sinned against you. Which is weird. Because Nehemiah wasn't even alive when they totally rejected God and they were set off into exile. I'm taking responsibility. I'm not all that. I'm broken and busted and I can't make it happen and left to my own devices I can't do anything about homelessness and I can't do anything about sex trafficking and I can't do anything about people who don't know Jesus I can't do, I, can, I can just I can't I haven't got it in me but you 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 have guys this is where revival begins This is where we make a stand. This is where something changes. This is where something shifts. This is where walls begin to be built up. When people, God's people get that God is very great and he's very good. That he is so great he could not be greater. So that every single time uh, when your iPhone sends you the news feed, you know that he is able, that he is bigger, that he is not freaked out and he's not surprised and he's not concerned and he's not worried because he's still on his throne and he's not going to let you down. He's never going to let you down. It's not in his nature to let you down because his name is faithful one. Whatever the circumstances, despite the circumstances and in the circumstances, Circumstances, whether the circumstances are relational, relational dysfunction, financial dysfunction, emotional dysfunction, he's not going to let you down because that's not who he is. That's not what he said and it's not what he's about to do, which is really good because you are going to let you down, aren't you? It doesn't take a lot of living on planet Earth. To know that you ultimately can't fix it, you can't run it, you can't solve it, you can't deal with everyone's emotional problems, let alone your own. You can't pay for everything, you can't save it. But he can. So here's the prayer. God, I'm going to lean in. I don't have answers to the geopolitical problems in our world. I don't know how we should structure ourselves. I might have some opinions, but I don't have answers. I can't solve the problems of our city. I I may have some ideas and some thoughts, but I know this, you can. And I know this, the humble, willing, able servant in the hands of a great and good God can do anything. And within 51 days, the city could be changed. The city could be changed. Guys, listen, the basic thought is this. The revival you seek out there first happens in here. The revival you seek out there first happens in here. The transformation God wants to do through you, he first has to do in you. And he's looking for a people who will say, despite the circumstances, 
despite the analysis, despite the fears, despite all the reasons why I shouldn't and I couldn't and it will never be me and there's no way it can happen, here I take my stand. Here I say enough is enough. The walls need to be built. The people need to be blessed. God needs to receive the glory. And I'm absolutely convinced that Nehemiah, as he was praying that prayer and he was standing before the king and he was going, I've got to make this thing happen, began to remember his forefathers. And he began to remember Moses. It's in the passage. He began to remember Moses and what Moses did. And then he began to remember Joshua and what Joshua did. And he remembered Gideon and the 300. And his heart began to be moved. And he thought, maybe I can be one of those who, who says enough is enough. We're going to do something here. And then I think he remembered Solomon and he remembered the promise of God to Solomon in the temple. And then, Mo, and then Nehemiah starts to pray back to God his promise. I love this. It's like he's saying to God, you said it and I'm calling you on it. You said it and I'm calling you on it. If my people call by my name, we are the people, God, and we carry your name, by the way. If my people call by my name will humble themselves, that's what we're doing right now. God, we can't do it, but you can. We'll humble themselves and we'll pray. We'll lean in. We'll feel the breath of heaven. We'll hear the beat of the Father and we'll begin to move and seek my face. Then will I hear from heaven. Then will I forgive their sin. Then will I heal their land. Nehemiah, I mean, this is ridiculous. Nehemiah, who's the servant of the king, who gets to drink the wine in case the wine's been poisoned because he was totally and utterly expendable. Nehemiah stands before the most powerful man on the planet and says, King, You know the city that your forefathers destroyed that was my city. I want to go back there. It's going to take me two and a half months because we both know I've got to go through the Fertile Crescent. It's going to take a long time. And when I say I'm coming back, we both know I'm not coming back ever. I want to go there and I want you to give me loads of tools and lots of material to rebuild the walls of the city. Oh, can I have some soldiers as well? And, and I'm going to rebuild the walls of the city that your forefathers destroyed because it was a threat, because it was so powerful, so that it becomes powerful again. Are you okay with that? <laughs> i tell you why he does it. Because previously, he's leaned in. And he's caught the breath of God. And he's heard the heart of God. And what happens is his heart has begun to beat in time with the king of heaven and his heart has been enlarged with the courage of the king of heaven. And he no longer cares. He's not afraid of anybody. So he goes, bring it on, king. Let's do this thing. And next week, we'll find out what happens next.